You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Today, my co-host, Steve Morrison, and I are joined by Susan Glasser, a staff writer at The New Yorker, where she writes a weekly column on life in Donald Trump's Washington. Susan, first of all, thank you for joining my colleague and co-host Steve Morrison and I for this podcast. Your reporting's been really critical for us to understand what's going on. Your latest piece for The New Yorker, How Did the United States End Up with Nurses Wearing Garbage Bags? You wrote, quote, a few weeks ago, it was already apparent that the federal response to the pandemic was late, disorganized, and putting large numbers of American lives at risk. What is becoming apparent now, you wrote, is something now just as unthinkable. Trump's reluctance to have the federal government play the role for which it was designed in such an emergency. Can you tell us what in your reporting has led you to that conclusion? Well, you know, thank you so much for having me on and thanks for doing this podcast. I think it's such a service at this moment when we're all trying to understand what is the specific nature of the dysfunction that's emanating from Washington right now. And that's, in a way, it's sort of crystallizing three years worth of experience with this administration, trying to understand which part of this dysfunction would be endemic to any government facing an, an enormous 50-state simultaneous catastrophe, and which part is specific to the unique characteristics of the Trump administration. Uh, and for me, I think that's where trying to hone in on this question of what is Trump doing with the federal government that is different? And and that's what everyone I spoke with kept coming back to is the reluctance to have the federal government play the leadership role, not just quickly enough, but it seems at all that one expects. He famously said that the federal government isn't the clerk for the states. So did he mean by that that the federal government isn't there to serve the states or isn't there? it feels like he's left the states to do this to themselves is that is that the impression you're getting well what's fascinating is that it seems to be an example of where they want to have it both ways that trump clearly seeks in his political positioning to avoid responsibility for the most difficult decisions that's why he never issued a national stay at home order It's why he said, well, it's totally up to the governors and refused to criticize the Republican holdout governors of states like Florida and and the Dakotas who refused to issue stay-at-home orders long after basically everyone else in the country had. So on the one hand, he wants to avoid political responsibility for difficult decisions. On the other hand, he wants to assert sweeping prerogatives for the federal role as he's doing Once again, this is Monday when we're speaking by saying that he has the right, the absolute right, he often calls it, uh, regardless of what the issue is at hand, he often asserts absolute rights to things. And in this case, he asserts an absolute right to open or close the entire country based on his decision. Same thing with the uh, protective equipment and the other things in the national stockpile. He disclaims responsibility when it suits him politically. But at the same time, I did speak with a senior administration official who essentially asserted, yes, absolutely. Uh, They just don't like our decisions, those governors, about how to use the national stockpile. But 
it's our role and responsibility and we're playing it. So in some ways I left more confused from the reporting than, than I began it. But, but I think the message is pretty clear and you wouldn't see governors like Gavin Newsom in California and Andrew Cuomo in New York uh, essentially saying we've been left to take things into our own hands uh, if uh, the federal government was working seamlessly with the states, which it clearly is not. So what happens next? Are we to assume that the federal government with President Trump does, as you said, often claim an absolute power and has taken executive privilege and executive power to a new level under his administration? Do we assume that he is going to take the absolute leadership role in this or do we have to wait and see that he's not going to take a leadership role in this? I think we've already seen a lot and we've already seen that he's not going to take an absolute role regardless of his political rhetoric. And in some ways, what you've seen is, I think, a presidential performance that aside from the kind of massive ego and, you know, television show, but putting that aside for a second, what you've seen is a presidential performance that is consistent with a very minimalist approach to the federal government such that would exist sort of at the extremes of the Republican Party. So it's not wildly out of keeping if you had an extreme ideologue as president who might say essentially an extreme states' rights interpretation of how to handle this kind of a crisis. And that reflects to a certain extent, of course, uh, the ideology of those around Trump. Trump himself has a famously flexible ideology and, you know, he's willing to spend vast amounts of government money, for example, which might be distasteful to some of his advisors or to his Republican allies. But I I do think that, you know, essentially, aside from the Trump rhetoric, what you've seen is sort of a what a very conservative right wing Republican response to this crisis might be. Susan, this is Steve Morrison. Um, We've gone through what seems like a series of fiascos. We had the testing We had the second fiasco, which is around failing to use the DPA and other powers to shape the marketplace for protective gear and ventilators and reagents. And now what you're referring to in your most recent column is the abdicating the leadership role in figuring out how to put in place testing, serological studies, quarantining, contact tracing that would allow us soon to be able to, in a very careful way, begin to lift some of the controls in a safe manner. And all of these these three things sort of uh, in a row lead you naturally towards a conclusion that governors and, and mayors uh, need to, uh, up to a point, just go out on their own and give up on the White House. But I'm not sure that that's entirely feasible because of the fiscal power and other powers that the White House still retains, even if it's abdicated, it doesn't care, it's ideologically blocked, and it's going about it when it does get engaged in a chaotic and incompetent way. But that question, to have that question as a central question in the midst of a pandemic seems pretty extraordinary. Well, Steve, I mean, you know much more about this than I do, but I think that is a a really smart and important way of framing it. The next stage may be even harder for the federal government, given its dysfunctions 
at the moment and lack of a coherent decision-making or policy-making approach to this, the kinds of things you're talking about as necessary for the next stage of reopening the country, which Trump clearly personally is obsessed with reopening the country, and yet it seems to challenge them with exactly their weaknesses in terms of identifying a coherent national strategy around testing, around uh, standards for that uh, uh, mobilizing, not just in a short-term news cycle, but over a long period of time. Those are all the capacities that seem to be diminished uh, by design in some cases. Uh, and so I, I, I worry that the next stage may be even harder. Ironically, anticipating a need for vast additional quantities of PPE, personal protective equipment, for more hospital supplies, for testing, those things should have been simpler for the U.S. to execute in the sense that they were part of the plan. They had been rehearsed by state governments and local governments, as well as by the federal government. There was advance notice of a couple months from China that this could be happening. And, you know, so that lost period when Trump refused to take this seriously and prepare the United States, in some ways, I wonder if that was the easier part of the challenge. Uh, we knew we needed to get more masks and ventilators, and we didn't do it. This next part seems more unprecedented and a much harder organizational and policy challenge for this country, given its problems with governance right now. I agree. I agree entirely uh, in terms of the, the scale. This breaks with the history of the way we go about delivering public health in America. I mean, it's calling for new technology and new national standards and, and a level of surveillance of individuals that we're not comfortable with and uh, the use of technologies. Um, but there it does seem to be a strong consensus among Democrat and Republican governors. I mean, when you look at what Hogan, Baker, DeWine is saying and compare that with with Pritzker and Inslee and Cuomo and Newsom, they're very much on the same page. And when you hear people like Gottlieb and Bossert on the Republican side and Frieden on the Democratic side, they're all kind of talking about the same things that need to happen. That's what's so remarkable and astonishing about the President of the United States being at war with science and expertise that was not previously partisan in any way. And having this sort of pre-existing echo chamber set up to amplify whatever conspiracy theories come out of his mouth on any given day. You know, when I was speaking with people for my New Yorker columns over the last few weeks, that's what's so striking is how nonpartisan this issue has been in the past and among the experts, you know, regardless of their party affiliation. Uh, you know, Tom Bossert was Trump's Homeland Security advisor and Scott Gottlieb, who, you know, many people, including me, have been following on Twitter throughout this crisis, you know, was in the Trump administration. And these officials, their, their views are not fundamentally different from those of people who served in the Obama administration about the science or what needs to be done. And, you know, you look at polls and you can come away feeling very distraught or, I suppose, modestly comforted. Right now, it does appear both Democratic and Republican consensus around the need for social distancing measures and for people essentially to stay at home and stay away from work in person if they can through the end of the month. You know, the, the numbers are lower among Republicans, but there's still a vast majority, basically, of everybody in this country supports this current policy, even if Trump himself doesn't. 
So is all this chaos coming from the White House? Well, you know, there will be years and years of investigations and reports of this. I think the chaos in terms of national messaging, in terms of the bizarre denialism, does seem to be coming from the White House. Obviously, individual mayors and governors and health officials have their own records in this case, and some of them will be judged by history, I imagine, to be better at dealing with this kind of crisis than others. You look at, you know, the San Francisco mayor and her early decision to move to restrict the city versus Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York, who was telling people to ride the subway long after it was obviously not safe for them to do so in large numbers. So clearly, everybody's going to be accountable Uh, at least to history and their constituents for their own records. And this is not Donald Trump uh, is the only person who screws up in a crisis. We know from history that that's not the case and it's not playing out to be the case here either. Where's the coordination in the White House, though, going? Because we seem like every day, you know, even today, there's a, a fire Fauci Twitter hashtag going around. The front page of the Drudge Report is fire Fauci. Peter Baker of the New York Times, who you have some familiarity with, has reported that there's uh, some movement in the White House about, you know, against science and against Fauci. What's going on here? Well, uh, one thing is it's not entirely clear that Trump can fire Fauci, although, of course, he can sideline him and move him out of uh, being a central figure in his coronavirus task force. Uh, That is an independent agency, a scientific agency, as I understand it. You know, the strategy by design was to attack the institutions of the American government and governance. Uh, That is the political playbook that brought Donald Trump to the White House and that he has been using when he's in it. So it can't really be a surprise that that is the political playbook that he's falling back on. And, you know, actually more and more as his initial bump from the crisis dissipates and he returns to being a a very, very endangered incumbent president in his reelection, you may see more and more erratic behavior, more conspiracy theories, not less, more attacks on uh, science and independence, not less. That's certainly a possibility if Trump perceives himself to be cornered, if he sees that the economy is not going to bounce back in the sunny and unrealistic forecast he's been given us for the last six weeks. So, you know, I, I think it's consistent with the politics that we've seen so far from the administration is a merger, essentially, that everything is political and therefore to be undermined, uh, that there is no such thing as independent, neutral, scientific advice. That is at, at the core of the belief system of Donald Trump and those who surround him and who have his ear. So that, of course, is, is worrisome to Americans who are simply trying to navigate this crisis and to stay safe. It suggests that essentially nothing is on the level that's coming to them from the White House. And that that's worrisome to people in a crisis. They, they want real information, especially when their lives and their livelihood depend upon it. Susan, I wanted to say a little bit more about Fauci and come back and ask you a question around his role. He occupies this fairly unique position as the oracle and truth teller to a string of presidents around crises. And he seems to have special privileges, but inevitably tensions come his direction when he uh, explains and admits that there's been failure systemically in the testing, when he goes on TV and says, yes, the delays in social distancing have cost lots of American lives. 
And that sort of feeds this pressure to cast him as part of the deep state, that public health and science are like the deep state. And he keeps coming back very honestly in his responses, but it seems also that public health is is a little different here. This is a pandemic, and it's a pandemic that can't be denied. It has its own logic and power, and it's a threat to all Americans. It just seems like that's where he departs from a James Comey or a Robert Mueller, where his role as the oracle is different. And the other point we were just mentioning earlier, that there's this huge consensus that cuts across parties that's existed in this field of health security for some time around what needs to happen. And so he's he's seen as the that voice and his popularity is almost 30 points higher than the president. Well, that's right. But remember uh, that polls, especially those connected with Trump, tend to be lagging rather than leading indicators. And uh, Trump has shown a remarkable ability to move Republicans uh, who remain strongly behind him on issues that we previously thought were core to their belief system and turn out not to be. Uh, look at how quickly Republicans had been willing to flip-flop uh, in the polls when it comes to their previously core attitudes about free trade or Russia and Vladimir Putin, for example. Trump has been able to lead that that public along with him, including in the early stages of this pandemic, to, to the frightening place where they were engaging in uh, scientific denialism. And now, as more states have been directly affected by stay-at-home orders and more cities and localities are becoming actually victims of the pandemic, that becomes harder and harder to sustain, which is why you've seen the switch in the polling. But it still, I think, should be worrisome to people who think that, well, you know, they can't deny the irrefutable facts of the pandemic itself or the disease and its course through the United States. I believe that right now, I think the surveys I saw this morning show that one in five people polled are now saying that they know of someone personally who has been affected by the coronavirus. You know, that's a large number, but it's it's not 100%. It's not 50%. So we'll see. That, I think, seems like an important number to pay attention to, right? It's like the sort of why Vietnam uh, mattered because there was a, a draft as opposed to why Americans have tolerated long-term conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan where there isn't one and only a small fraction of the population Mm -hmm. is directly affected. So I'm looking at that number uh, to see how it changes. And again, I I do agree that uh, it's, it's both the science and the economy, by the way, on both pieces, there's a reality. And Trump's margin for spin and for BS is arguably smaller than it is on things that have less tangible uh, direct impact on people. He can't spin uh, the economy out of recession if that's what it's in, and he can't spin uh, America out of a virus, which is clearly the strategy he deployed in both cases initially. Do you think he's losing his ability to hold the American public's attention with the briefings and the way the briefings have been going the last week or so? Well, you got to wonder. I mean, you know, I I obviously need to look at those and have been watching those for professional reasons. And I would argue that it's very important for people like me uh, as uncomfortable or exhausting as it may be 
to watch them. I do think it's important simply from a bearing witness standpoint. Some of the things that have been said by the chief executive of the United States in this crisis have been astonishing and jaw-dropping and important for us to record, uh, no matter how much we might personally be tempted to look away. However, I agree with everyday Americans. It's hard to imagine that every night at dinner time, uh, all the way often going through dinner time on the East Coast, that they would listen to two hours of Donald Trump every day uh, for months at a time. I, I'm skeptical that, that that will continue. And and just the astonishing nature of a president bragging about his television ratings on days when 1,000, 2,000 Americans are dying. It's just, it's so extraordinary that people can think this is okay. Well, what struck me about it was it's been reported that he was in a bit of a slump and the briefings helped him get his swagger back. And this is how he's used it to... off attention. Many politicians do so. Uh, you know, anyone who's ever seen Bill Clinton work a crowd knows that he got energy from that exercise. Uh, Donald Trump feeds off of being in the center of attention and remarkably has an ability to feed off the cent- being the center of negative attention as well as positive attention. So I can well imagine that some of that reporting is accurate that Trump personally uh, has been reinvigorated by these briefings. But uh, of course, it comes at a, a certain cost for all of those who are stuck viewing him. And he tends to conflate whatever the issue, his personal interest with that of the national interest. So he believes that people are tuning in because they like him on the show, as opposed to believing that perhaps Americans who are astonished and dismayed that their entire lives have been appended and in many cases, their livelihoods destroyed, that they might be tuning in because they're desperate for information and insight, as opposed to tuning in because they like it. Now, you've been doing a lot of reporting in addition to what's going on in Washington to what's going on in Silicon Valley and how Silicon Valley's tried to work with the White House. What, what have you learned in that regard? Well, it's very interesting for me to speak with some of the people involved in the sort of Americans raising their hands to help at this moment of crisis. And obviously, the tech world, the Silicon Valley world has uh, a lot that they can bring to bear. There's a lot of, you know, instant needs that people have for things like governments, you know, trying to administer like an entire massive $2 trillion grants to small businesses, trying to match up uh, the desperate need for personal protective equipment. You know, Jared Kushner was tapped by Trump to his son-in-law to engage in this sort of pickup basketball game, drawing in Silicon Valley types and industry types into the national effort. But, you know, the folks that I spoke with were really dismayed at what they saw uh, as they encountered a confusing morass in which the Kushner task force, you know, wasn't offering much in the way of clarity and, you know, seemed astonishingly both late and uninformed. And, you know, saying, well, let's just build a website to one particular guy I spoke with by the name of Eric Reese, who is a well-known figure in Silicon Valley who uh, wrote a book called The Lean Startup that was all about, uh, you know, getting quickly to market with what he called minimal viable products. So they call him up and they say, can you start a website to match these desperate hospitals with suppliers as if that would fix things? He said it took about three hours only over a weekend to determine that there were already like nine different websites. Uh, that did that. So there was plenty of MVP already out there. <laughs> well, exactly. So he said, you know, he called back. He said, well, we don't need a website. They said, yeah, but could you build one anyway? <laughs> so then he thought, okay, well, I'll 
pulled together uh, this group of, you know, a new umbrella organization since so many Americans had started groups in the first couple of weeks, desperate to help people. Groups that, you know, in my view, really tell the whole sad story of this crisis. Like, let's sew masks now and, you know, get them PPE and things like that. So he pulled together a coalition of about 30 different groups that had sprung up from nowhere, uh, called it the PPE Coalition, got a website, got a hotline started was astonished to hear these heartbreaking stories. He was having heads of infectious diseases at major hospitals in the United States calling him, begging for help. And it wasn't because they didn't know who to call. It's because there was no one on the other end of the line when they did. Every hospital in America has a supplier and a distributor already for personal protective equipment. You know, the issue was that there's a scarcity of supplies and that the orders for more, we're not put in in that window of time when we knew the virus was out there from China and was likely to come our way. And so, you know, again, it's just a fundamental misunderstanding of the problem. It's compounding the original sin of failing to prepare for it. And even when this admiral was put into place uh, by Jared Kushner at FEMA, supposedly to be in charge of this supply chain task force, First of all, nobody even knew his name for a while. They never announced this publicly. They never. <laughs> this is the logistics admiral. Exactly. Susan, a couple of quick points on the technology in Silicon Valley. And then I wanted to ask a question around WHO. On the Silicon Valley, it's, and we need to remember also that during the Obama administration, during the Ebola outbreak, 14 and 15 in West Africa, there was a surge of, of activism and dialogues that was no less chaotic at that time between the White House and folks coming out of Silicon Valley and lots of money came forward. And it's interesting that, you know, you have folks that are truly and I think genuinely trying to be, do good deeds and they have some capacity, but they're not accustomed to operating in emergencies and whether they're Ebola or something else. In this instance, the, the Trump administration did turn around its dialogue with firms like Facebook. And Facebook's changed some of its practices, which is probably a good thing for refurbishing their reputations with the American people. And I've been impressed by some of the ads that they've put forward. And Tedros, Dr. Tedros at WHO has done something very similar with the social media in terms of getting into a completely different kind of dialogue. On WHO, you know, we, we've seen the president and many of his supporters, and including a number, no less than eight or 10 Republican senators, attacked Dr. Tedros, attacked WHO, alleged that they're in the bag with the Chinese, they're China-centric, they've been, they've been accomplices in cover-ups, a lot of very grave allegations, most of which are pretty baseless or unproven. There's no question that WHO's made some mistakes, but they but they holding them to account for some of the truly awful decisions that the Chinese made seems fairly short-sighted. And now there are these calls to defund WHO, create some institutional alternative, which we'll hear more about uh, this week. Can you say a bit about what's driving all of this? Is this just deflecting blame? Is this some old business tied to Taiwan, anti-UN? And is this sort of impulse transient? Can it be contained? Or is this as dangerous as it? some people argue it is? So those are really great questions. 
Let me just quickly unpack that a little bit. First of all, just to your point on Silicon Valley, yes, on the sort of well-intentioned outsiders, I think that's always a, a risk in a crisis. I was struck uh, by the, the main person I, I spoke with for this piece, Eric Reese, who really had sort of more the mind of a consultant. And he was very worried about this moment where kind of he quickly identified that people were coming up with the wrong solutions or being well-intentioned, but the world doesn't need another PPE group at this point. It doesn't need another website. And so he was actually trying to sort of steer people away from that. He, he found that basically every philanthropist was under enormous pressure from any organization they were involved with to essentially, you know, say, yes, I'll pay for a flight from China filled with uh, as many N95 masks as we can get them. And of course, that could potentially be a terrible thing where you're simply just taking protective gear from one American customer and, you know, paying a higher price and getting it for another one, as opposed to expanding the overall supply. So, you know, I think some people are aware of the risk of uh, kind of well-intentioned flailing about in, in a crisis like this, but I think it's happening, number one. To your point about blame shifting and why are they attacking the WHO right now, you did hear this new rhetoric from President Trump last week. It seemed to be part of his message of the week. Interesting for me will be whether they follow up this week. Trump last week explicitly said, well, we're going to have uh, more to say to you about the World Health Organization. We've conducted, quote, a review of our funding. And so will we actually hear more about that this week? They claim that they've suspended or put on hold U.S. funding to the organization. Will that continue to be a message from the White House or will they move on to another institution or organization or people to blame? Already there have been a lot of efforts to deflect blame. And they tend to, as you said, have kind of pre-existing political resonance among the Republican Party. So you saw China hawks like Tom Cotton, the senator from Arkansas, or inside the White House, Matt Pottinger, uh, who's the NSC official who's uh, been dealing with the Chinese throughout the Trump administration. They were early warning about the possibility of a pandemic, but, but they came at it from the vantage point of being China hawks. And you saw some of the rhetoric from Tom Cotton and also from the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. He, he literally caused the G7 foreign ministers not to be able to agree upon a group statement because he insisted that they use the term the Wuhan virus, which they refused to do. Now, Trump seems to have backed away from calling it the Chinese virus or the Wuhan virus for now. And so he seems to be looking for new people to blame. He's blamed Democratic governors. He's blamed the WHO. He might ultimately blame Fauci for all we know. Uh, so I would imagine that the WHO is not the final word when it comes to looking for other people to blame for this. What do you think is next this week as you look towards reporting this week? Well, it's a good question. Uh, you know, you see in New York, Governor Cuomo already saying, well, we are beginning to flatten the curve, but at the same time, resisting pressure for premature opening. You're still talking about hundreds and hundreds of people every day dying from this in New York. And of course, they're farther ahead than, than other cities and states are uh, who will experience more sharp surges in that. I, I, the tension between Trump wanting to wave a magic wand and tell everybody to go back to normal and the course still somewhat unknown for how the disease will progress seems like that's going to be the major focus. And especially if Trump's 
Poll numbers continue to worsen as they did last week. I think, you know, you'll see more and more lashing out from the president and more and more tension between the economics and the public health aspects of this crisis. You'll also see in Washington more pressure on Capitol Hill. They say that the stimulus money for the small business loans is going to run out by the end of this week. But there's a standoff so far between Democrats and Republicans about whether simply to pass a clean bill that would add more money to that pile and not do anything else. Democrats want to do a number of other things as well. So I think you'll see the the political maneuvering heating up among Congress as well. Susan, thank you as always for the best insight in Washington. Um, We really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Susan. Well, thank you to both of you uh, for this podcast and for all that you're doing to keep people like me informed, uh, which is more indispensable than ever in something like this. 